God, and perhaps he will stop oppressing you, your gods, and your land. Why harden your hearts as the Egyptian and Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened theirs? When he afflicted them, they didn't send Israel away. Didn't they send Israel away and Israel left? And then let's jump ahead to verse 13. The people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting wheat in the valley. When they looked up and saw the ark, they were overjoyed to see it. The, cart, the Philistines have sent the, the ark on a cart into Israelite territory. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there near a large rock. The people of the city chopped up the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites removed the ark of the Lord along with the box containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. That day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. When the five Philistine rulers observed this, they returned to Ekron that same day. As a guilt offering to the Lord, the Philistines had sent back one gold tumor for each, each city, Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. The number of gold mice also corresponded to the number of Philistine cities of the five rulers, the fortified cities, and the outlying villages. The large rock on which the ark of the Lord was placed is still in the field of Joshua Beth Shemesh today. Now we get to this interesting portion here. Verse 19. God struck down the people of Beth Shemesh because they looked inside the ark of the Lord. He struck down 70 persons. The people mourned because the Lord struck them with a great slaughter. The people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom should the ark go from here? They sent messengers to the residents of Kirath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the Ark of the Lord. Come down and get it. This is the Word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear gracious Holy God, as we come before you this morning, as we open your Word to study it, as we look at this story of the return of your Ark from the, the Philistines back to your people, to Israel, God, I pray that you would open up the scripture to us so that we could see what it is that you would have us to see. And as we open your word, as we look at it, as we examine it, as we seek to learn from it, to learn more about you, my prayer is, as it always is, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So in this chapter 6, what we really have is we really have two sections of chapter 6. The first section is what the Philistines do to get rid of the ark. And the second section is what the Israelites do when the ark is returned to them. And, and here's the thing. When an author, any author, but particularly a biblical author, takes one event and shows you two responses to the same event, they're probably trying to compare those two responses. So what the author of Samuel is doing here, I think, is showing how the Philistines have handled the return of the ark to God's people, and how God's people have returned the ark, the return of the ark from the Philistines. And so he's setting them up for them to be held next to each other and examined next to each other. But before we can do that and understand maybe what the difference is and, and why those differences are important, let's look at what each group did. 
first, let's look at what the Philistines did, because that comes first in the chapter. It makes sense, right? The ark is with them. They have been struck with a plague, this plague of tumors we read about in chapter 5. What we see here in chapter 6 is they also apparently have been struck with a plague of mice. It's the first time we're hearing about it, but, but they choose to make these, these little gold mice, and a, a wet, as well as the tumors, indicating to us that that's also something that's going on for them. One of the things that we see here, one of the things we need to remember about the Philistines, and actually, in fact, about all of the people that God's people encounter in Scripture, even on up into the New Testament, is they are interacting with people who are deeply religious. You might know the expression, there are no atheists in a foxhole. Well, there are no atheists in the ancient world. That sort of materialistic worldview just doesn't exist. Everybody is religious. And the Philistines, and we even know this from archaeological evidence, the Philistines were an exceptionally religious people. If you remember uh, when, when, um, when Paul, in the book of Acts, right, and Paul goes to Mars Hill and preaches at Mars Hill, and, and he, he tells the people of Athens, he said, he said you are a very religious people. You, you, have, you have temples to everything. In fact, you have, even have a temple to the unknown God. Well, the Philistines are kind of like that. They're very religious. They have temples everywhere. They take their faith very seriously. They care deeply about the gods and how to serve them and how to placate them and how to manipulate them and how to get from their gods what they It's important as we see this, as we think about this, to remember being religious isn't good enough. There are all sorts of ways to be religious. You, you might know people who are deeply religious, and yet they have no faith. Maybe, maybe, they're, maybe they are religious in terms of, of some other, other gods. I've, I've known people in my life who were very devout Buddhists. Uh, Jamie's aunt and uncle, uh, Ed and, and Lindsay, are with us. Ed's the uncle, just in case I did those backwards. Um, and Ed and I, yesterday, we took Jamie up to Spencer to the North Carolina Transportation Museum. And as we were headed out of town up the sort of North Chicken Road, we passed that place. Y'all have probably seen it, right? The place where there are the two large Buddhist shrines out in the middle of a cornfield. As, as Ed said, not what I was expecting to see in rural North Carolina, two Buddhist shrines in the middle of a cornfield. Well, let me tell you, I, I know nothing about the folks who have built it. I know nothing about that at all. Except this, I know that they are deeply religious. You don't build those sorts of structures without being deeply committed. But brothers and sisters, their religion isn't going to cut it. It doesn't matter that they're deeply religious. We have this idea that's even seeped into the church that being religious is good enough. Well, because, it's, because there's only one God, right? So it's all kind of the same thing. It's all kind of the same. You know, so as long as I'm just sincere in my beliefs and strive to do, that, that's good enough, right? Like God will take what I offer, you know, even if it's offered wrong. 
And what we see here in the story of the Philistines is that being religious is not good enough. If you remember, the ark was set before the, the idol to the god Dagon, and God humiliates Dagon twice. Being religious is not good enough. We see that the ark has been in Philistine territory for seven months. Let us remember that seven biblically is a number of wholeness and completion. So one of the things that we're seeing is that the the journey of the ark, the sojourn of the ark among the Philistines is complete. But we know the ark is there because of the work of God. God's work is complete. What, What God is preparing to teach, the preparation for his teaching is complete. One of the things that's interesting is, as we read this story is that we see that God has used the Philistines' own pagan worldview to teach them about his sovereignty and his glory. If you look at verse 5, this is the, the leaders, the priests and religious leaders of the Philistines speaking. Make images of your tumors and of your mice that are destroying the land Give glory to Israel's God. Let's cast our mind back a couple of chapters. Remember at the end of chapter 4, what are the Israelites concerned about now that the ark is gone? They're concerned that the glory of God has been removed from them. All of this, all of these stories are about the glory of God. And so here you see these Philistines understanding and preaching about the glory of God, the sovereignty of God. What has happened is that they have seen that the God of Israel is superior to their God. Now, it's very clear as we go through this, right? They are not converts. They don't understand fully. They don't understand completely. But what God has led them to understand is that he is superior to, to their gods. So what's interesting is that at the same time that the Philistines are coming to an understanding of the glory of God, as we are going to see in a few minutes, Israel is about to show that they still don't get it. As a quick aside, it's important for us to remember as we read these stories and as we talk about Israel, yes, we mean the the people who were living at that particular time in that particular place. But remember that Israel ultimately is God's people. We are God's people. We have been grafted into Israel. So when we read stories about Israel's response, it's important for us to remember that that is our response. And what Israel is capable of in 1 Samuel 6 Israel now, the church, is capable of as well. We're just as prone to the same sins as God's people have always been prone to. And so what happens is they, they understand they understand that they can't just send the ark back, that that's not going to cut it. That they've got to send in back this guilt offering. There's this understanding, right, that, that, that well, we've done this thing, we've offended this God, we need to send it back with some sort of sacrifice to appease him. 
But it's interesting that they use this language of guilt offering. We've seen that language in Scripture before. What is the guilt offering that is offered? It's mandated in Leviticus, right? It's, it's, it's the offering that's offered on Yom Kippur. It's, it's the, the offering that's offered to, to, to expunge the sins of the people. A ram, but God will provide the ram. Just as God provided a ram to Abraham and Isaac on the mountain, God has provided us a ram, a guilt offering, in Christ. And we see as the Philistines are, are thinking about this, they, 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 they prepare these guilt offerings, these, these gold sculptures of tumors and mice, to go back. They don't really get it. They don't really understand. And yet, they understand better than the Israelites. The Philistines haven't been given God's law. The Israelites have, and yet they still understand that it's about his glory. But there's this moment where they're like, well, maybe we're wrong. Maybe, maybe this isn't really about God. How are we going to figure out that we're, we've done this the right way? And so they come up with this actually kind of brilliant idea. They say, take two milk cows who've never known a burden and hook them to the cart and, and separate their calves from them and go put their calves in another pen. And if the calves go to Israel, then we'll know that this is what God wants. If you've ever been around cows who have just recently calved, you know that when they're separated, mama is going to make a beeline for the baby, Right? you've also ever been around a cow that has never been under any kind of burden, you also know they don't respond well to that. It takes lots of training to get an animal to be ready to accept a burden like that. This is what they do, and this is what happens, and, and, and now we come to the part of the story of what does Israel does. Well, Israel looks up one day, the people are out, and they look up, and they see this cart coming drawn by these two cows, and on the back of the cart is the Ark of the Covenant. And if we read the story, and you read it in a very cursory way, at first it looks like, well, they respond absolutely correctly, right? They take the cart, they break it up. It's right here at this wonderful flat stone. They, they, put the, the, they use the wood from the cart as fuel. They offer a sacrifice of these two cows to God because they're so thankful that the Ark has been returned but then we we keep as we keep reading we see that god strikes 70 dead because they look in the ark you remember uh, the people are not to look in the ark the, the people aren't even to touch the ark if you've ever seen the end of indiana jones and the ark of the covenant you you raiders of the lost ark you have an idea what happens when you look in the ark I mean, it's a movie, and it's fictionalized, obviously, but that's kind of what happens when you look in the ark. You die. No one. No one's even to be in the presence of the ark uncovered except the chief priest on the Day of Atonement. But as we go back, and even as we look at what Israel has done, we see they've already 
messed up. The, the, the moment the ark enters into their territory, they mess up. First of all, we have no indication that they cover the ark at all. They leave the ark uncovered, which they're not supposed to do. Second, they take these two cows and offer them up as a sacrifice. Sounds great. Until you go back in Leviticus and read, cows are not to be offered. Bulls are to be offered. So here you have it, right? They're already breaking God's law, and the ark has only been back for a brief period of time. They're already showing that they still haven't understood the way that God is at work. In fact, we could even ask ourselves, between the Philistines and the Israelites, who are the real idolaters? Israel has been equally guilty of attempting to manipulate God. God has shown them over and over and over again His grace. And they have, been, they have responded by attempting to manipulate Him, by turning His ark into an idol. And they have continued that even as the ark has returned. Brothers and sisters, you do not need to be a Philistine. You do not need to be a pagan. You do not need to be whatever to behave idolatrously. Israel does it over and over again. And so what we see in God's response to them as they continue to to minimize his ark, to minimize his glory. What he sees is that he is initiating his own exaltation. He's initiated his own return to God's people. He's initiated new acts of deliverance. We see here that he's, he's turned Israel's failure into an opportunity for him to further show them who he is. It's interesting, as we think about it, the church, God's people, has been blessed with a, with a unique view of reality. We see in this story, there, there's sort of two worldviews. There's, there's the worldview of the Philistines and the, and the worldview of Israel. And, and those two views are still present. There's a, a story that Dr. George Hunter, who used to be a professor at Asbury, used to tell. That one time he was on a on a on a on a plane trip and he got started talking in the airport to these two businessmen and sort of you know turned into you know what do you do what do you do and when they found out that he was a, a theology professor they got started talking about it and and so he just he asked them a simple question he said well you know as we're talking about this just do you believe in God and and one of the businessmen said man look at the universe look at how massive it is. Look at how intricate and, and complex it is. 
There's only way that can be is if there is a God behind it. And the second businessman said, you're right, it's, it's massive. And it's enormously complex. And how can there be a God that cares about me in the midst of the vastness of this universe? The way that for hundreds of years that we have addressed this this problem that Dr. Hunter uses the story to illustrate is this idea of, of theism. There is a God, but God doesn't care about me. There is a God, but he's not active. There is a God, and he maybe set the universe into motion and then stepped away from it. The problem with that worldview is while it, it, it can appear wonderful, A, it's not true. All right, that's the number one problem with it. But the second problem is it's not really fulfilling to people. Because we know, in, inherently know inside ourselves, because God has made us to be in relationship with him, we know that there's something more. We know that we can have relationship with more beyond us. Because God made us that way. And, and so we we wrestle with this, with this thing. And, and one of the things that we're seeing more and more of, go to Barnes & Noble sometime in Fayetteville and look at the shelves upon shelves upon shelves of the New Age section. There's a, there's a rise in all forms of mysticism and New Ageism because people know that they can be connected to something beyond themselves, but for 200 years they've heard that God doesn't care about them. And so they're seeking they're seeking connection to something transcendent. Over and over again in the Bible, we, we witness, right? We witness this. We witness God injecting himself into his creation. There was a man named Abram, and God shows up. And for no reason, he picks Abram and he says, I am going to make of you a great nation. Why does God pick Abram? We don't know. God picks Abram because God picks Abram. And he makes him Abraham. And Abraham has a son, Isaac. And Isaac has a son, Jacob, also called Israel. Jacob has 12 sons. And they end up in Egypt. And then we see God's people cry out, and we see God interject himself into the story again and save and liberate his people and pull them out of Egypt. And then we see God interject himself in the story again as they enter Canaan. God going before them, making them, giving them victory. In this text, we see how he, he crashes into the Philistine world in order to teach them that their ways of explaining and understanding divine presence were all wrong. And in the same way, in the same time, he crashes once again into his people to teach them that a present, imminent, glorious, holy God cannot be ignored or manipulated or mishandled. 
Brothers and sisters, God loves his people too much to allow them to misunderstand his nature. We look at this, and one of the things that it should tell us is that we matter to God. If God did not care about Israel, if they did not matter to him, he would not have taken the time to teach them who he was. If we did not matter to God, he would not have sent his son to be a guilt offering for us. The message of this text is is greatly needed in today's world. It, It illustrates that this Philistine worldview, a a worldview that is so similar in so many ways to the worldview that so many people right now have. This this neo-pagan, post-liberal, new age perspective. It shows that that's inadequate. It shows that God is not coterminous with forces of nature. It shows that God is not created in our image. It shows that he's not susceptible to forces of magic or idolatry or manipulation. In fact, it shows us that God cannot be manipulated or pressed into service whenever we feel threatened or at risk. The story shows us that the God of Israel is is present and is in control. And that he is victorious over all of the forces of our world, just as he was victorious over Dagon, just as he brought mice and tumors to the Philistines, just as he struck Israel. But just as the story shows us that that other worldview needs to be tempered and understood by God, it's also showing that the Israelites, that we have to reconsider the way that we view God. Brothers and sisters, There is only one God. It's not that we serve the best. We serve the only. It's not that we serve the most holy. We serve the only one who is holy. The time can come when when God's presence and God's holiness goes out from us. Or at least it can feel that way. But when it comes back to us, let us not continue the way that it has always been. Let us not look under the hood as it were. Rather, let us understand who it is that has called us to serve him, to love him. It's not some God. It's the king of the universe, the sovereign of all creation, the one who cannot, will not be manipulated or turned into just another trinket to add to our collection of good luck charms that we rub when we want what we want.
our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 400.